Happy September, everybody. We got a new month and a new Wind Up podcast. I'm your host, Mike of MTGA Wines, and today we're getting into a little bit of nostalgia. We're getting into some good stuff of years gone by, and this was all prompted by a, a very good friend of mine, Mr. Gray Young, who is going through the MBA program at Stanford. Uh, he had I don't know if it was a project or an article that he was helping uh, work on or was putting together himself regarding the 2013 vintage. And I figured it's the 2023 season. We're 10 years down the line. Let's do this little retrospective episode on what was potentially a vintage of a decade, if not the first 25 years of this new century. Uh, 2013 was a special one. And Gray, if you're out there listening, I appreciate you sending me those questions. It was a blast to answer them and kind of dive back into the memory banks about what happened during that season and why it was so special. Uh, Very excited to see the end result. Uh, For those of you who have no idea who I'm talking about, uh, check out, go over to the SoundCloud app and check out Gray Young uh, and Gray Space Radio. Um, If you're into house music, a little bit of EDM from, I don't know if he's going to hate me for describing it this way, but my musical uh, verbiage is going to be wrong. Uh, But he's, he does an amazing job curating these outstanding mixes. He's an incredible talent uh, DJ wise as well. uh, Killing it and is on the cutting edge of basically anything house music related. We're talking like your Kygos, your Sultan and Shepherds, your uh, one of my favorites that he introduced me to was uh, Nora and Pure uh, as well. Just very cool. It's music that I listen to almost every single morning. It's something that we just put on around the house, something nice and just good vibes to start the day. So you should be introduced to Mr. Gray Young and what he's doing on the music side of things. Uh, also, just a very smart individual. Sorry, I'm hyping you up, big guy. It's, what I got to do. You're the reason I'm doing this episode. Because he he prompted these questions surrounding the 2013 vintage because uh, I guess Virginia Boone had put together a kind of a retrospective on the 2009 vintage. I don't, and I don't really know why they focused on 2009 since I was like a kind of, a, it's an odd number. It's 14 years ago. It's kind of like, okay, that was like a, you know, it was a good vintage. Can't argue with it. Uh, but 2013, you kind of celebrate the, ten, the five and 10 year range. And I think you're... You know, that sounds about right. So I think this is something that we're going to continue to do into the future as well as that as Harvest rolls around, as long as I'm still podcasting, we're going to do that retrospective on past vintages. I'm a little bummed that we didn't start sooner because I could really dive into my first few vintages. But the good news is that 2013 kind of wraps and coalesces around 2011 and 2012. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, 2013... For those that don't know, was the second year of really getting into kind of the drought seasons that we experienced in the 20 teens. It was coming off a bumper crop year in 2012, which means really high yields. There was a lot of wine being made. Uh, 2012 was also pretty high quality uh, for you know for Napa. Uh, that was also two years removed from 2011, which was the last kind of really cold, wet, rainy year that Napa had. One of the more challenging vintages, I'd say, that we had outside of maybe 2020. Uh, this was 
a year that for me personally, in 2013, it was my fourth vintage of making wine. Uh, we had officially added on a white wine to our program. We were still focusing on Merlot as our flagship at that point in time. And I really felt in 2013, like I was getting my sea legs. I was, shoot, how I was a couple years removed from college. I had really just started selling wine to get MTGA, you know, going and actually have some income from it rather than just throwing money into a black hole, which felt nice. It felt nice to sell some wine. But making wine from that vintage was just an immense amount of fun. It was one of the first vintages, like I actually felt like I knew what I was doing. I was a little bit more confident in my ability uh, and adding on a white wine at that same time. But more, this isn't just about me. As much as I would love to extol the virtues of my winemaking, we're going to dive into what 2013 meant to really, I think, Napa as a whole. Uh, we'll start kind of on the growing season side of things as well as and then get into harvest, how those wines progressed in barrel and then eventually how they were released and where they are now today. And as usual, I will do my best not to let my squirrel brain get the better of me and we'll stay on track as best as possible. So let's do it, shall we? The 2013 growing season was a line it up to knock it down kind of year. It was hot. It was dry. It ended up with one of the earlier harvests that we had had in recent history at that time. And there was one, I think, concerning thing about that. It was a beautiful year, but there was one thing that I know I was worried about, but I think that many people were. And that was the overall phenolic development of the fruit that was out there. The phenolics are your flavors, your aromas, your tannin, I mean, everything. Everything that really kind of like makes up the flavors and characteristics of your wine. Those are the phenolics. And when you have a season that is sped up and shorter than what you're normally used to or what you expect, you run the risk of those not developing as much and not being as complex, I think, and that is something that obviously Napa is known for. We're known for these amazing, intense, complex, very dynamic wines. And if we had this shortened season, were we going to be able to do what we do best? And I think we were able to for a couple of reasons. As we progressed through the 2013 season, it was evident that it would be lower yielding than 2012, which is a good thing. It, the downside is you're not making as much wine. There's not as much fruit out there in the vineyards to bring in and to make wine out of. But there's a good thing that happens is that with the lack of fruit that's on the vines, the flavors concentrate, the complexity increases, and you get that development that you're looking for. This is the same thing that happened in, say, 2015, where it was a super low-yielding year. Yields were down 40 to 60%. There was so little wine coming from 2015. 2013 was not that bad. It was lower yields than 12, probably about what you would expect. I, if I remember correctly, there were some vineyards that were down a little bit, but not anything that was kind of outside the normal realm of craziness. It was just a little bit short and definitely shorter compared to 2012. The thing about 2012, to sidebar just a little bit, is that when you have these really big, what we call bumper crop yields with lots of grapes out there, that's your big concern, is that 
The vines are overloaded and as a result, they're spread too thin and they just don't quite get the development that you want. 2012, luckily, didn't quite have that issue. We'll dive into that a little bit more as we compare some of these vintages to one another. But it certainly, in my opinion, was not as complex as a 2013 is. That's just my own personal subjective opinion. But I think the 13s outshine the 12s day and night. 12 is still a great vintage. 13 is just that much better. So with that complexity and the lower yields and a beautiful growing season, even though it was hot and it was dry, there is a cliche out here that drought seasons make for great winemaking seasons. And the reason for that is because it stresses the vines. Again, you build complexity and you develop that fruit so that it becomes very, very concentrated. You might have smaller berries, lots just packed with flavor. Think of like the smallest, like tiniest, like blueberry you've had that just is so delicious. That's what we're kind of looking for is these little flavor packets that are just a punch to the taste buds. That's what we want from these low yielding years if you're not going to be able to, or lower yielding years. And realistically, we'd prefer that like every year if we could get it because it makes just amazing wine. So you have this beautiful season. It's very, very early harvest and you're worried about the phenolic development. You know that the wines will get ripe in terms of their sugar content, but you want the flavors to get there. This is actually something that happened in 2021, just a couple years ago, where the sugar levels and everything got there pretty quick, but the flavors weren't there yet. So we, even though the grapes were quote unquote ripe, we needed to extend the harvest as much as we could to try and get the flavor development that we wanted. It's why 2021, I think, is a little bit higher octane. Those alcohol levels are a little higher in 2021 because you had higher sugar levels than normal because you had to wait longer into the season to get the flavors that you wanted. 2013 was kind of the opposite. It happened really, really early, and the fruit was complex and ready to go, and we just, bam, went for it. We were able to be just off into the races after that growing season. And with that you were able to kind of pick the grapes when you wanted to. You know, whenever the fruit was just ready, you could go for it. Uh, to my memory, there wasn't like a giant heat spike. There wasn't any rain that came in in the forecast. It was a very balanced harvest season that followed up that growing season. And as a result, we as winemakers were able to just slow play it. It's like you could see through the matrix of Mother Nature for a minute and dodge all the bullets from all the agents coming at you. Thank you for the matrix reference for those of you that are keeping up. Anyway, moving right along. Last name is Anderson. I've been hearing Mr. Anderson since those movies came out. I got to throw at least one of those references into one of these shows at some point. I mean, come on. So with, see, squirrel brain. See, as we're getting closer to harvest, this is going to happen more and more. I just want you all to be prepared. It's going to be a thing. We're just going to, you know, just, you know, take it for what it is. Mike's just on one as soon as the harvest season comes around. So with this beautiful season leading into a fast harvest or a, a rapidly approaching harvest, I should say, we were able to really just bring in the fruit at our leisure. It was still a busy, crazy harvest season like they all are, but we were able, it was pretty well organized. Fruit came in at a nice, even pace. We were able to pick when we wanted to. 
when the fruit was kind of at its peak and just make great wine out of it. Mother Nature really, quite frankly, lined it up for us just to knock it down. I am a firm believer that if you made a subpar wine or a wine that you're not happy with in 2013, you need to think long and hard about your operations and what you're doing. Because if, if you screw up great years like that, the bad years are going to put you out of business. <laughs> that is plain and simple. It is just beyond me how sometimes that happens. We do, there is a running joke within the industry, and some of you know this because we've chatted and had many a conversation over many glasses of wine, but the running joke is that there are a handful of producers in Napa that make bad wine just to see if anybody notices. I'll let you try and figure out who those are. I'll pause for dramatic effect. You can mull that over, and let's get back into it. Now, once those wines were or sorry, once those grapes were at the wineries and being processed and fermented and put into barrels for aging, again, you're just at this point with such a great season, you're just trying not to screw it up. You're doing the best you can. It's an even keeled year. You're not too, too stressed. You're not too, too exhausted. And you can just line it up to knock it down. It's your job as a winemaker with a great year is not to get in the way. It is so important to not overthink it and just let the process happen. Especially for your uh, small producers who have the ability to do that if you're mass manufacturing stuff. It's a whole different story, obviously. But if you have the ability to just be the guiding hand and let great wine happen, that's when great wine does happen. If you have to force the issue you're going to make pretty good wine. Is it going to be a great wine? Hmm, maybe. Maybe. But if you have all those great factors that are just aligning up and you can just run with it, be the guiding hand, do not over-manipulate, do not over-process, don't let the wine make itself. You got to give it a little, a little bit of, you know, a track to ride down on. Keep it, you know, within the guidelines, you know. But remember that. They're just guidelines. You can bend some rules, you can break others, right? Once these wines really started kind of settling down, getting through their fermentation process, and as we were getting into the aging side of things, it was evident very early on that we had some great wine coming out of this. I think we weren't really sure exactly what to expect. It had been such a volatile few years from 2009, 10, 11, 12, into drought years in 2013, like that that four or five year stretch was just kind of bonkers. And to have, I mean, I pretty much like everything that can happen within wine growing seasons out here happened in that span, which is kind of crazy to think about. At least for, for me growing up out here and the seasons that I've experienced over 32 years of living in Napa, Man, those those few years were a little bit of all of that. It was kind of nutty. But it also kind of illustrated that as consistent as our weather patterns are here, it can be sometimes diverse and sometimes challenging in the case of like a 2011. Now, 
as these wines are shaping up and they settle down, the barrel aging process has begun. I really, you start thinking about, okay, now how does this vintage, how do these wines compare to vintages past? And I was early on, I really did think that 2013 had a leg up on 2012, just bar none. It was just something that was going to be super unique and just more complex, more balanced and something that was going to be special compared to what 2012 had to offer. Now, 2012 had all the hype, which makes sense. You saw this happen in the late 90s between 1997 and 1998, although it was kind of flip-flopped there. Between 97 and 98, and then again in 2011 and 2012, one of those two years in those segments was super cool, super rainy, super what we would consider challenging, or at least what the critics would consider challenging, even though you know, whatever. Not going to get into that. And one of those years was considered like the banner golden child year. And 1997 in the late 90s was considered like a vintage of the decade, potentially like a vintage of the century, like so much pomp and circumstance around 2000, uh, around 1997. And then 1998 was that cold, wet, rainy year that followed it up. It flip-flopped in 11 and 12. 11 was the really cool, wet, rainy year. And then 2012 was this beautiful, high yields, high quality, just amazing, perfect winemaking conditions for Napa wine. What I think 1998, or sorry, what 1997 and 2012 will have in common is that they are outshined by the quote-unquote subpar vintages around them. If you talk to anybody in the wine industry in Napa, I mean, maybe not anybody, but I'd be willing to say like a serious majority, like 80 to 90% of the people, if you said, hey, of those four vintages, which two are your favorite? They would say 98 and 2011. They would say the challenging, quote unquote, awful years. Why is that? It's because... The people that can make great wine and know how to make great wine know how to leverage those challenging seasons to make great wine. The people in the industry that truly favored 97 and 2012 might not. Or they just really love big, fruity, less complex wines, in my honest opinion. I'm generalizing quite a bit here. But that's really how I feel about those two quote-unquote banner years compared to those challenging years. Now, how does that all relate to 2013? Well, I'm going to tell you. Guess what? It's almost like I'm setting myself up to answer my own questions. Crazy how that happens. I, do, I feel that 2013 took the best of both worlds from 2011 and 2012. It had the structure and the intensity and the power that a 2011 had or a 1998 had because those wines were so intense and so structured early on that they needed more time. They were just so intense. It was a little over the top and you had to wait. Instead of waiting like five years for them to be really solid, you needed to wait like seven to 10 years. Like right now, the 2011s are so good. They're so good, but they just took longer to get there. The 
2012 and 1997s were just easier to access. Within three to five years, you could crush those wines. They were delicious really, really early on. So with the structure of, 2000, of like a 2011, with the approachability of say a 2012, you combine those two things and some magic happens. You get that wine that is outrageously delicious young and has the ability to age almost as long as you want to, as long as it's stored under the right conditions. And that's what 2013 had to offer. 2013 took the best things from the rough vintage and the critically acclaimed vintage and combined them into one. What made this even better is that there was some decent hype around 2013, but I do think, and this might just be me, but it was overshadowed by the hype of 2012. Because 2011 was so close in the rearview mirror and it was that challenging year, everyone and their mother jumped on 2012 and said, this is a vintage of the decade kind of situation. And there was so much wine to go around that it was easy just to, like the floodgates open and 2012s were everywhere. 2013, be a little bit more average yields and kind of overshadowed by that hype, didn't quite get the respect it deserved. And... The 13s are probably still going to be, I mean, today we are talking 10 years down the road. They're not necessarily going to be easy to find, but you look at folks like ourselves at MTGA, uh, CV, probably Corison Vineyards, a handful of others that, you know, keep really solid library programs and older vintages around. You can still find them, which is great. And they are singing. They're everything that we've been talking about. The finished product of these 2013s was this very approachable, but at the same time, very structured wine. They were just amazingly balanced. And as we've allowed them to age and get to this 10-year mark, they honestly have only gotten better. The caveat to aging wine, of course, I've said this many a time, but if you love bigger, bolder, more intense wines, you need to drink those wines sooner. If you like them to be a little softer, but more complex and I, I would say balanced, you're going to want to wait a little ways. Just kind of depends on what style of wine you like to drink. Now, as we moved into, you know, the years after those wines got bottled, I, you know, it was one drought year after the next, 2014, 15, you know, 16, we got a little bit more rain, but not too, too much. Uh, 17, we had the first little round of fires, and there's been a lot that's happened since over the last 10 years. I don't think it was until 2019 that we had a vintage that is really going to rival what 2013 had to offer. Very selfishly, I think 2013 is a vintage of the decade for the 20 teens. 2011 is hot, and I mean hot on its heels. I think we still need to wait a little bit more to see how the 2019s actually hold up. Once we get to next year and maybe three years down the line when they're getting to that five to seven year old range, we'll really start to understand kind of what 2019 had to offer as a vintage. But until then, 2013 is just gangster. It is so damn good. And I, it was valley-wide. Again, jokingly, there are those producers that purposely make bad wine out here, but most people make pretty great wine out here. 
And if you have 2013s laying around and you're wondering when you should open them, start cracking bottles. But they can last longer, believe me, they can last longer. But do yourself a favor and drink some of them now because damn it, they're delicious now. And you might as well enjoy them while they're hot. Dead serious. You could get hit by a grape truck tomorrow, people. Drink your wine. That's why we make it. If you have multiple bottles of something, that's when you know it's time to crack a couple and sacrifice some to the just, I don't know. I was going to say the angel's share, but that's a completely different thing. Anyway, drink your wine. <laughs> it's a great time to dive in and see where they're at. Because if you really love where those 13s are right now, you can drink them anytime you want. Basically now until you feel like drinking the last bottle. And if you feel like you want to see where they are in another five years, you can do that too. Because I am putting my foot down and saying, if you want these wines to last 20 plus years, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. I'm telling you, 2013 is a glorious vintage. I don't think they're showing any sign of slowing down just yet. 2012, on the other hand, starting to show a little bit of age. Starting to show a little bit of age, in my opinion. 2011, give it another 10, 20 years. It'll be beautiful. Don't worry about that. But 2013, man, is just one of those years that... It's, it's years like that that it feels like it makes our job as winemakers easy. Because... Mother Nature lines it up for you and you just get to do what you love and you don't have to be stressed about it. You don't have to worry about the challenges. You can just focus on making kick-ass wine. And if that's what you do, damn it, God, the beautiful vintages are going to do it for you. Now, I do have to get a little bit sentimental and talk myself up a little bit. I rarely do this. I hate talking about my own wines even when I'm trying like some of you know like I've been around the country some of you that listen to this have you know sat down in tastings with me at the winery sometimes even out in uh, different parts of the country and this is a little my little dirty secret I hate going toot toot beep beep on my own horn I don't like shameless self-promotion it bugs the crap out of me I feel super awkward doing it it's why this podcast, just in general, even though it's not all about MTJ, it's about a lot of different topics, is challenging. It's one of the reasons why I started doing it is because I was uncomfortable doing it. And I felt as though this is a great way to learn and grow and do things and hopefully provide some semblance, some bit, some semblance of entertainment. We can say that three times fast, right? Some semblance of entertainment, some semblance of entertainment, some semblance of entertainment. Nailed it. Damn it, I'm good on it on it today feeling it must have been that extra cup of coffee all right but i'm gonna challenge myself here to talk up and mtga and kind of what it meant to me as a winemaker personally i wanted to cover kind of the basis of napa and how it compared to the vintages around it first but i gotta tell you 2013 for me as a winemaker, being my fourth year and just starting a wine business at that point and selling wine, the wine that came out of it for me was a benchmark year. It was the, if I can get even remotely close to making wine this good next year, the year after, 10 years down the line, I'm going to be making some killer wine. 2013 was that good of a vintage for us. It became 
the wine that I hold, it's the candle that I hold all my other wines to, to make sure that they are of the utmost quality. You know, given what different vintages provide in terms of their challenges and the weather that comes through it, you always have to adapt and overcome. Certain production techniques change over the years, but regardless of all that, 2013 is still the wine that I try to live up to every single year. And since this podcast is getting released on September 6th, there's a decent chance harvest has started or it's just about to. And it means that I'm right back in that race, trying to make sure that this year lives up to that hype. That is how important 2013 is to me personally as a vintage. It is what set the tone for our wine program for the last decade. And I don't know, I can't speak for all the winemakers out here, but I'd be surprised if there weren't more people that felt that way or that didn't feel that way. It was just that great of a year. You know, some of these retrospectives can be challenging because you're comparing it to the newer vintages that you think are going to be great or you're looking at years like a 97 or 98 or maybe like a 04 or 09. It's, it's like at a certain point, you're comparing apples and oranges. The vintages are just different. And if you're mass producing and homogenizing your wine, then it's the same every year and no one really cares. Vintage matters a lot less at that level. If you're over manipulating your wine and processing it really, really heavily, that matters a lot less. If you're focusing on like true handcrafted wines with some actual character to them, it matters a whole lot more. And man, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to come up even now, 10 years removed. It's hard to come up with words about what that 2013 vintage meant to me personally, but also I think what many of us feel in the industry in terms of the great vintages that we've had in recent history. And I do kind of relish the fact that it didn't quite get the hype of 2012. It was a little bit of this under the radar vintage, in my opinion, still, still got some good props, but not nearly as much hype as 2012 because you had this really challenging vintage beforehand in 2011. Uh, but once those 13s really started coming out of the gate, oh, they're just delicious, overly delicious. So we missed a wine of the week last week. This week I am going to toot toot beat beat my own horn, and that is our 2013 MTGA Napa Valley Merlot. It is a wine that has been Brittany, the HBIC, that has been her favorite wine of ours since we released it. If there's one vintage I have to have around the house at all times, it's that one. And again, with it being my benchmark, it is arguably the most important wine. That 2013 Merlot is the most important wine that I have made thus far in my career as a winemaker. And with that, I have to, I'm gonna give myself, if you'll allow me, Shoot, I'm in my office by myself. I'm allowing myself <laughs> to give myself a pat on the back and say, this wine of the week is the 2013 MTGA Napa Valley Merlot. But hell, 
any wine of the week this week ought to be just a 2013 vintage just because it can be because 2013 has that kind of potential to just be awesome thank you guys so much for tuning in on a little bit of the retrospective thank you for going down memory lane with me i appreciate it uh, please continue to like subscribe download the podcast share it with your friends do all the things uh, you can make sure you can find us on apple Podcasts. i believe we're on spotify uh, we do if you're watching this you can't actually watch the podcast on youtube if you're one of those nerds like me that's got like a two or three screen setup you can have the podcast on one screen watch me dance around in my office and do all my things feel free and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We actually have all kinds of tasting notes, seller updates, all kinds of other good stuff on our YouTube channel. So that's really worth checking out. And just share it with your friends. The better we do with the shares and the downloads and all the things means the algorithm does better for us in general. So thank you again so much for tuning in. It's a pleasure as always. We will catch you next week. Harvest is kicking off. Uh, be sure to tune in to our uh, social media networks that that was formerly known as Twitter as well as Instagram that's at MTGA Wines. We're going to be posting regular seller updates and harvest updates as the months go on, as the days and weeks and everything go on, trying to take you right into the heart of the harvest action. Uh, we're also going to be doing the YouTube shorts thing. So again, check out the social networks if you really want to know what harvest is all about and a winemaker's frame of mind you're going to want to tune in. Uh, we'll be sure to talk all about it in more of these long-form podcasts as well. But if you want like up-to-the-minute updates and action, that's where you're going to find it. So cheers, everybody. Have an amazing rest of the week. We'll see you next time.